This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen on your DAB radio smart speaker or on the free Times Radio app. And if you want to come on the radio and play the quiz, email me now with your name and number, studio at times.radio. You can want to play Can You Get to Number 10? We'll even send you a certificate, and that will impress your friends. Uh, right, coming up on today's episode, uh, it's our monthly Times Radio focus group with Kex CNC. James Johnson is in the chair. Today, he's been speaking to former Conservative voters, 2019 Conservative voters in Wakefield. There's a by-election coming up on June the 23rd. Uh, find out what they think about Boris Johnson and Partygate, but also Keir Starmer too. That's coming up in just a moment. First, though, as ever, on a Thursday, we kick off with our columnist panel, and it's Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. The columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Night and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yeah, lovely stuff. It's time for Night at the Marriott. In, uh, India Night is on the line. Hello, India. Good morning. And in the studio, all dressed in very funereal today, James Marriott. All it's in, not funereal. All in black. I was blue. I'm wearing blue jeans. And this, um, this shirt's actually slightly polka dotted, so uh, okay, I re- strongly resent that. You've got your exciting pink shirt on. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, let's talk about second homes. Are they immoral? Uh, the government is, is part of Boris Johnson's announcement today on uh, various things, getting people on the housing ladder and that sort of thing. Uh, they go, look at, one of the things they're going to do is is looking at uh, doing more so that uh, places with lots of second homes can can use probably council tax to try and uh, dissuade them. Michael Gove was on uh, Time Fairly this morning. He said he didn't think there were more, but it's important to recognise that when you have uh, pe- people in places like Devon, a local folk who can't get onto the housing ladder because the price of property has been bid up by second homeowners. Sometimes you need to take appropriate steps to make sure the communities can flourish. What do you think, India? Um, I've slightly changed my mind about this, actually. I never had any problem with them before. And now I think that they are very problematic. I mean, by definition, second homes exist in scenic places. Um, and... Those scenic places have people who live in them already and come from them and work in them and so on. And I mean, I really, really notice where I live, you know, the prettier villages just are just sort of empty in the winter. They're just empty. And it's so miserable for the people who are still there to have, you know, dark houses with no lights, nothing going on, no life. And it's really awful for the people who are from there who can't afford to buy there just or rent there. 
Just remind us, Cindy, where you are in the world. I'm in I'm in East Anglia. I'm in Suffolk. That's right. That's right. Um, so I think, but I think it's kind of, you know, of course, Devon and Cornwall are, are very kind of prime examples of this and everybody wants to be by the seaside and so on and so forth. But I think, I think it's a real luxury and I think it does real damage to communities. On the other hand, of course, the people who have the second homes when they are in them contribute to the local economy, employ people perhaps, you know, to do their gardening or whatever. But I think... I think they can have a very, very depressing effect on small communities, small rural communities, or coastal. What do you think of this, James? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm totally anti-second homes. My sister lives in the Lake District, and her flat in her building in Keswick is the last one in the building that is not a second home. Mm. And I mean, rents are just sky high. You know, it's, I mean, it's. I mean, you know. My sister's tried to make it nice, but it's a horrible flat. It's tiny, it's dingy. Um, for all my sister's interior design skills, um, it's a really. It's. I mean, I hope she's not listening. Well, I mean, she 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 has been completely critical of my my living my living standards. So um, it's. T- I, I I do have a bigger platform to criticise her than she does. Um, um, it's, it is interesting though because we've we've had. I mean, listeners will know this. I I love Lyme Regis. We go to Lyme Regis a lot. It's down on the on the south coast in uh, in Dorset. And uh, we were there, you know, whenever we were there, we always like look at the the the, the properties, that, you know, in estate agents' windows and that sort of thing. And I had to start thinking, well, maybe, maybe one day, maybe we could, you know, think about getting... And then actually, the more we've talked about it, the more we've realised it... Well, quite apart from the, necessarily the financial situation, uh, but the it just feels like a bit long now. Yeah. And actually, um, yeah, we can, when, when we want to go there, we can go there and stay in, you know, in Airbnbs or whatever. But knowing that when we're not there, there's somebody else in them rather than it standing empty. I've been just totally radicalised by my sister's story. So there's uh, her landlord recently has been trying to sell her flat um, and people will come in with their kind of, you know, uh, interior design architects. And, they, and my sister always says, this is my home. This is where I've lived for, you know, a couple of years now. And these people come in and go, oh, yes, we should we should demolish that wall and this will have to go. And it's, you know, terror is disgusting in here. I mean, they're obviously correct, but this is where she's been living. And um, she said, one of the, you know, one of these kind of parties came tramping through recently and she did say, oh, this is my home. And they were like, oh, you know, lovely view. You're going to miss that, aren't you? And it's just, I don't know, the whole thing is really bleak. And I mean, she says you go around the Lake District and all the windows of all the shops are just, you know, full of unfulfilled job adverts because nobody who can actually afford to do any of the jobs that it takes to keep the Lake District economy running, you know, people working in cafes and stuff like that can afford to live there. And it's just, yeah, it's just total mess. And they're really, I mean, another really sad thing is these kind of ancient Lakeland families, like people who have lived there for Mm. like centuries, like their families have lived there for centuries Mm. and have all kinds of ties and all their ancestors buried in the, ancestors are buried in the local churchyard and they're out. And yeah, it's just, I I find it really, 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 really depressing and sad. But you see, Airbnbs don't necessarily help because, of course, in order to turn the thing into an Airbnb, you need to buy it. You need to own it. And, of course, that that is another property that yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. local yeah. has. You know, it's kind of a nightmare. I think I think the I think the sort of heyday of second homes has kind of has gone. I think it's really difficult unless obviously you have a little flat at the other end of the country so you can be near your elderly parents and go and visit. You know, yeah. I mean, there are there are there are it's not it's not a kind of unilateral ban um on the morality of them but but i think they're difficult increasingly difficult somebody's just texted in actually but, uh most rural areas rely on tourism i lived in the highlands until recently we have incredibly big problems if we limit the place for tourists to stay it's a disaster for young people in particular trying to settle it doesn't change that ruining the main sector be hugely damaging and there is there is that tension that places that rely on tourism but i, I, I suppose what we're doing is we are slightly drawing a distinction i think between 
for instance, me buying a house in Lyme Regis and going down once every six weeks for a long weekend and it's standing completely empty the rest of the time. It's not even bringing in tourists. Yeah. It's mm. just completely empty. And it's definitely not a place that somebody who runs a local business can live in. I suppose that is then slightly different to a sort of holiday mm. cottage, which although it, that is a house that could be, um, uh, you know, someone could be living in, it's probably booked up for most large yeah, parts of the year and it's bringing people, people in. People yeah. spending money locally, yeah. But I remember when we, cause we did the show down in Lyme Regis um, earlier this year, I think almost everyone we spoke to, you know, business owners, landlords, gallery people, all of that, they, they, almost everyone I spoke to who used to live in Lyme Regis had moved sort of basically like you were saying, um, uh, India, sort of a bit inland to one of the sort of slightly mm -hmm. less nice towns. Uh, yeah, and, and I then, find... And then had to commute back into the... What was it? Greece sort of theme part of sort of tourism theme. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I kind of think, are we just gonna? I, I just the principle of you know all the most beautiful bits of the country are now going to be reserved for rich old people and mm -hmm. young people without any money are going to be are going to be banned from them. Just as a bit sort of, I don't know. It sits very uncomfortably with me. Um, well, let's let's talk more about um, your your views on uh, interior design and design <laughs> generally, James. <laughs> the triumph of twee. You've written your column on today. I have, yeah. I, it's maybe a bit dangerous for me to start writing all these columns about about um, about design because anyone, as I say, who came to my flat would maybe uh, wonder whether I knew where of I spoke. Maybe you should do, a, do the radio show from your flat one. Yes, day. well, from my from my from my bedroom, the little portion of the flat that I <laughs> that I that I actually have any well that I rent that is mine. <laughs> so we can all sit, in, all sit in the edge of my bed um, amid the mess. Uh, yes, I was. Um, so I was I was away for the Jubilee weekend, so it kind of reached me. Uh, it reached me uh, sort of in dribs and drabs. And some of the things I was hearing, a lot of it looked wonderful, but some of the things I was hearing were quite strange. And I, I remember waking up to hear that a 600-foot corgi made of drones had flown over Buckingham Palace. And I just thought, a lot of it looked nice. This struck me as a bit much. And <laughs> I was just like, how? My column is basically, how did tweeness and twee things become so central to our culture? How did they? T how is it that... There in the royal family has a giant cartoon corgi, just the complete domination of twee of our culture. Stupid emojis, cat videos everywhere, everything. I, and and so last week I I renewed my Vodafone contract and I I couldn't speak to a person who had to speak to an online digital assistant who was like a little cute little robot who looks like a Mario Kart. And I'm a grown man having this depressing conversation about a Vodafone contract with a little smiling robot with a stupid hat on. And it's just so demeaning. And then then I got back from Budapest and I had to walk through um to walk through the digital electronic passport gate. And the thing that was helping me through this was an animated plasticine man. And I was like, I'm a grown man and I'm imitating the actions of a little plasticine man. And I was just like this is just, I was just, please, it, can we uh, act the, like grown-ups? The only thing I, I, thought, I thought reading the comment, is, is it twee? Is twee the right, it's a, I, I get your point, it's a sort of infantilization. Yeah. But I just wondered whether or not twee was, not that I want to get into a... Yeah, no, of, no, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of, what is, what is the word? I'm definitely yeah. open to the idea that maybe twee doesn't capture it. What, Stupid cartoons, infantilization, can't we just be grown-ups sometimes on some important occasions like changing country or celebrating the queen i don't know what what do you think uh india i think there's a difference between twee and just sweet um and i think twee is 
oh gosh, the copy on those bottles of smoothie or fruit juice or whatever <laughs> that, that start chatting to you like you're their mate and they're really kind of pally and kind of over familiar. And I can't bear any of that. I can't bear the writing on products that pretend that they're animate and that they're speaking to you. It, it you know, that is sort of grossly twee and infantilizing and just sort of awful. But I think a 600-foot corgi made of drones is heart-lifting and cheering and yes. sweet. Yeah, James. I don't... Well, I'm not I, getting the distinction here. I don't see the difference. Why do you hate Britain? <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Um, no, I'm really struggling to... You not see the difference, really. I, I think a giant smiling corgi made of drones, I don't understand why that's better than a chatty drinks carton to me they seem very similar and no, equally I annoying like a giant, i would like a giant drone corgi to be above my house at all times i, I thought think. it was i thought it was absolutely terrific <laughs> i have to say i thought that but then i thought the the parade was just brilliantly bonk i thought the whole i thought i thought it was all very good anyway let's get your views on some more interior some breaking interior design news james uh, and knowing your views on the royals um we've just got news of what the cabinet have given the queen for her oh excellent um, she, so over the last, yes, yeah, so she's been served by f- 14, 14 prime ministers from Winston Churchill to Boris Johnson. James Callaghan's cabinet marked the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977 by presenting her with a silver coffee pot. In 2002, for the Queen's Golden Jubilee, her managed to receive a silver gilt plate from her cabinet ministers, which was engraved with their signatures. God, that's a bit naff, isn't it? This is really useless. She definitely has lots of silver stuff already. A silver plate with what? Like, who, who would have been in the cabinet? Like Alan Milburn's signature. Anyway, today, today we learn that for her Platinum Jubilee, she's been given a hand-painted enamel-on copper music box, uh, which mm-hmm. it was, uh, it's got a platinum mount, and when you open it, it plays Handel's Hallelujah. A symbol of praise, this gift, gift honours her exemplary service and phenomenal achievements. You can almost see her sort of unwrapping it and put it with the others. Yeah. <laughs> put it in the music box room. These are very boring and unimaginative. I think, I think the music box is, is better than the other. Oh, hang on. It's got a... No- yeah. Hang on, hang on. It gets better. It's got the picture of number 10 on the top. Oh, my... I, I can't... The picture's I can't even visualise this anymore. The box... The box... The yeah, so the music box pictures number 10 down on the top and a miniature portrait of all 14 of Her Majesty's Prime Ministers since 1952 <laughs> around the sides. <laughs> the portraits are surrounded by the same yellow shade found on the staircase walls at number 10. Okay, this is something more and more hideous. I t- I'm taking it all back now. Poor <laughs> oh, queen. <laughs> has, this, has the poor woman not suffered enough with an amu- a music box with Gordon Brown's... <laughs> face and moving out of the uh, so you, you don't want one of those in your flat then james uh, no 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 uh india do... no these are rubbish presents <laughs> these are awful presents when i when when i finally manage to get the uh the number 10 Flickr account to load i will um i will uh tweet some pictures of it but i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad we've sorted all that out lovely to see you both as ever India Night and James Merritt then. Of course you can read them at the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the Focus Group. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, and it's back. The Times Radio focus group in association with the global communications firm KEXCNC. Every month we convene one of these to ask voters what they think about how the government's doing, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, what really matters to people outside the Westminster bubble. As ever, in the chair for the focus group that was carried out last night was James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, and he's here with me. Morning, Matt. So let's begin with our legal obligation. Explain to us what a focus group is and why it's different to an opinion poll. So a focus group is a conversation with a small number of voters, usually between six to eight people, who are selected to represent a certain subsection of the electorate in a given place. Now, it's not a poll. We're not saying this is a representative view. It can't be. It's only a small number of people. And we've had polls of Wakefield where we're doing this focus group over the last couple of weeks, too, to compare to. But what it is allows you to get under the skin of what people might be saying in those polls about why what they think about the politicians, why they think it, and the kind of messages that resonate with them. And uh, who were the people that were in the group last night? So we went to Wakefield, uh, uh, the uh, obviously ahead of the by-election there in a couple of weeks' time, uh, and we spoke to first-time Conservative voters in 2019. So those who came to the Tories for the first time at that election, voted for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party, uh, and are at least open to v- v- considering other parties. So yeah, first-time Tory voters is the way that I put it. And just to explain, because you, you, as well as doing focus groups, you polling as well, you did a poll in Wakefield. What does that tell us? Yes, we did a poll, uh, Jail Partners did a poll uh, a couple of weeks ago in Wakefield, and it showed a 20-point lead for Labour. Uh, now, some of the things you might hear today are not going to make you think that that 20-point lead may be the case, and I'm sure we'll, we'll return to that. But of course, that can happen if the Conservative 2019 voters don't turn out, but I'm sure we'll revisit that later on. Okay, here we go then. Uh, We kick off, as ever, the sort of warm-up question that you always start with the group, just as very straightforward. How do you think the government are doing? I'm not impressed with the the overall behaviour of of any of the parties, but I sort of think let Boris get on with it because he has got the majority vote of his people and I don't think there's sort of anybody else better than what they're doing at the moment. Pretty bad job. I don't think he is the right person to lead, but who is the that's out there that's in a better position to be able to lead? Well, they've shown themselves not to be able to govern or manage very well. And they can use the COVID as an excuse, but the the COVID has actually just shown who they are in terms of being able to manage and control certain situations. And the current party gate situation has just emphasised that even more for me. Well, I don't think very well. It's painful to see when you turn the news on that there's not really ever any good news regarding the government at the moment. At first, I thought they were doing okay, but of late, nah. 
I'm sorry, I think they're just riding out now on the skin of the teeth. I don't think they're doing a very good job, really, and uh, I haven't really got much trust in them anymore. I think they're all right. They're neither good nor bad. I think I've, no, I've never, ever heard anyone say anything good about any government, ever. I only agree with one thing. They helped out with, like, you know, the furlough and stuff to help companies out and people like me in my job, to keep my job. But apart from that, no, they haven't done well at all, really. <laughs> It's a, I mean, I'd go, it's a mixed bag. Some that, you know, and we've had this right from the very beginning when we started doing these um, focus groups. There was a little bit of, well, nobody else could do any better. This is, as much as anything, there's sort of resignation to things being a bit rubbish. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, what certainly has gone is that benefit of the doubt that we've seen, uh, that we saw back in 2020 and 2021. Voters saying, well, he's had a tough job of it. He's doing the best job he can. You don't get quite that, you don't get quite that generous uh, a view. But yeah, there is a sense of resignation. There is that sense of, is, is there anyone else? There was a trace of uh, move on after the confidence vote, um, a sense of he's had the vote, it's gone. But as we'll hear later, as the group went on, the more that move on sense actually disappeared rather than became more entrenched. So, yeah, it's not complete you know, anger and hostility, uh, but certainly this is a government that is now sort of very much in the in the sort of crosshairs for attack from these voters in a way that it wasn't throughout the last couple of years. Let's zero in then on on Boris Johnson. Remember this this group of voters they voted for the Conservatives for Boris Johnson for the first time in 2019, and now they're they're wavering. So what do they think of the Prime Minister? I think he thinks he's indestructible, but he ain't got a clue what he's doing. For me, Boris Johnston is just a, a mouthpiece for his wife and his father with that horrible soundbite, Build Back Better. He's just not good enough. He's just a joke, I think. He, just, he shouldn't be a leader anyway. He does come across as a buffoon, but he's leading country and we have to accept what he says and does. I don't think he is completely 100% to blame. He is just the spokesperson. And I think he is um, not the scapegoat, but he's, he's getting the flat. I've heard people comment on him in uh, interviews before saying that he's quite a charismatic kind of character. That, to me, doesn't come across at all. And it almost seems like when the opportunity came up to go for Prime Minister, he thought, oh, I'll have a go. And I think he was quite shocked that he got it. He's more like a puppet doing what everybody else is telling him. They don't think he's got any clear leadership skills at all. I feel like he's untrustworthy. He doesn't set a good example to the rest of the country when he can't abide by rules that they set to start off with. I am a little disappointed that he's not led the Conservative Party in a more traditional Conservative fashion. James, that was the, the group's view on Boris Johnson. One of the things that really stood out to me, and we've had a bit of this in the past with different groups, and it sort of crept back in again, this idea of him being a puppet, a puppet, sort of buffeted by events. He'd previously been a puppet of Dominic Cummings when he was in number 10. Now he's a puppet of his wife and his father. His father's almost entirely separate kettle of fish. But this sort of, this sense that, that Boris Johnson, the great charismatic, strong leader, has turned into a sort of, just he's not, he's the Prime Minister, but he's not really in charge of events. He's not in charge of himself. He's just sort of bounced around. Someone else is pulling the strings. Yeah, and that is certainly a big shift from the kind of things these voters were saying in December 2019 and around it. Uh, I mean, I, I did focus groups uh, in Wakefield um, in January 2020, um, a month after that election result. And there was real excitement about Boris Johnson and a real sense that actually this was the strong man who was going to get things done. He had got or was about to get Brexit done. Uh, and voters 
uh, felt that he had this sort of force of nature about him uh, that they didn't see in other politicians. They didn't think he was the most trustworthy person in the world, but they did think he could deliver. And that has really gone. And in many ways, that's the most dangerous thing for the Conservatives at the moment, because he's always had that trust deficit problem, but he's also got that strength problem now as well. Um, and I mean, one one quote uh, in the focus group really stood out. It was someone who said, there must be somebody more powerful pulling the strings because no one person could be that daft. Now, there's a, <laughs> now, there's a saying in Westminster, which is, you know, Things are often cock up rather than conspiracy. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll leave that thought there. <laughs> okay, but on the question of, and it's clearly, you know, you look at the polls uh, nationally, something like two thirds of people still think Boris Johnson should resign. Obviously, the, all, the, all the kerfuffle this week over the, uh, the confidence vote. Uh, but you asked the group, this group of, they, they voted, don't forget, they voted, this group entirely voted for Boris Johnson for the Conservatives the first time in 2019. Do they think he should quit? I think he should resign, me. Yeah, agreed. You can't preaching for us to stay indoors not see our loved ones and all this that and then get caught and not step down he's, i agree he's, i agree with that some saying they weren't there but voters were saying they were there voters there there's actual people in working environments where these rules were set down where some people have lost their jobs because of these so-called rules and other people have actually been fined probably more as well so what about those people my dad were in hospital we couldn't see him couldn't see him for two or three months and he actually passed away and we never got a chance to say bye or anything like that and I think when it hits you like that when it's something that personal yeah it's and then when he, he tries to deny it that it, oh I didn't realize that that was breaking the rules I mean personally if I saw him in the street I'd probably punch him the guilt it's left me with with not going up to that hospital yeah. and banging on the door and demanding yeah, to go too. in there yeah. And leaving my mum to die on her own is the worst feeling ever. To see him doing what he's done, I just think I'm, I'm appalled. We had him banged to rights with what he did and nothing's happened to him. No, so I think they, they, they deal with it because they are the government, but they haven't. So we can't be confident that things are going to be right and wrong. He thinks he's got away with the vote when it was 211, 248. But that's, that's his own little clique. It's not our opinion. And in fact, James, uh, you asked them uh, for their reaction to that no confidence vote. All of them were disappointed he wasn't voted out, but not surprised. Uh, as you heard in that last one, so that, you know, mates looking after their mates and, uh, and so on. The problem, and I suppose this is the problem, it doesn't matter how many times supporters of the Prime Minister say, let's move on, we've drawn a line under that, he's apologised. That doesn't cut it with someone whose mother died on their own. And that, like she was saying there, she's going to live with that guilt forever. And clearly she knew it was bad, but she thought she was doing the right thing. And Boris Johnson's holding... Um, leaving parties for, for valued staff because it was good for morale. Yeah, and I think that in Westminster, you know, I think it's quite easy to sort of, you know, become inured to some of those lines. But actually, when you hear it like that, like as you say, for that, for that voter, that's going to be important to them now, six months on from the parties, and it's probably going to be important for them in a year or two years as well. I have to say, I was surprised that there wasn't more of a move on sentiment um uh, when after theresa may's confidence vote when i was uh, running polling in downing street then there was actually quite a lot of sense of okay you know she's she's pr she's proven she can get their confidence give her a chance now we're not seeing that uh, to the same degree of boris johnson with with boris johnson and the other worrying here for the thing for the conservatives is that the, the fact that the party has voted confidence them seems to be now infecting views of the Conservative Party more broadly. One voter there said um, the fact they kept him in shows how this government is run. So there's going to be concerns about the party as well as the leader for other parties to make hay of.
Just uh, we'll we'll keep up working our way through the, the focus group in a set. But you mentioned because you were in number ten when Theresa May went through all this. How what how much sort of thought then goes into pushing the reset button? Trying to I mean Theresa May did actually have the slight advantage of Christmas, you know, because it was in December. The Christmas holidays came out, and then it's a sort of New Year, New Start sort of vibe. Boris Johnson is clearly trying this week, but it's he it, it seems to be finding it more difficult than maybe Theresa May did. Yeah, I think also the circumstances are a bit different from the public's perspective. Um, with Theresa May, actually, in the focus groups, they're always sort of viewed her as being very resilient and trying to get on with the job and thought she needed to at least have the chance to get the Brexit deal through. Voters also talked about men in suits trying to, you know, sort of, you know, get force, force this uh, woman out. So I think that might have had a element of, of um, attracting sympathy as well. Obviously, by the time we got to sort of, you know, May 2019 or so, that that patience had had run out but i think you know in this situation we voters don't see a task for boris johnson to do um they see behavior that going right back to mid-january they thought he should resign for and they see that not having taken place so that forgiveness is going to be harder to earn i think you also asked them uh does boris make you more or less likely to vote conservative every single one of them said less which is you know given that he was the one who made inroads of this but let's move on uh, now to the Keir Starmer you know that's what they thought about Boris Johnson but you know there's a there's another man in town he thinks he could make some gains uh he, you know labor've got their eye on this this by election in Wakefield let's take a listen to what uh, they had to say about Keir Starmer i don't really know <laughs> sorry don't really know what to say yeah really he hasn't done anything apart from both him and is it angela that is sort of understudy they've said that you know if they got fined that they would actually step down whether they would or not is a different matter. I don't know. There's no good coming from any of them. I would like to buy that man a dictionary and highlight the word opposition. So I don't think he really understands what that means. All the way through COVID, he kind of agreed. And then now he opposes things, but with absolutely no plan as to what they would do. He's very wet. He's not, he's not a leader. He, he riles me, to be honest with you, because he's just how ineffective he is. He's a people pleaser for me. He does what he thinks everybody else wants and he's got no real power or knows what he wants to do. Sometimes it can be two-faced because, you know, we all this weird house parties, what we're going off, he would do it the same. So he's not like a strong person to be a leader for Labour, I don't think. It's just, he's just doing things what Boris would do. I think he's a slippery slime ball. And if I'm perfectly honest, he's the sort of bloke that just makes my skin crawl. All he does is put down everybody else around him, but doesn't actually state what they would do. There must be quite a few Tories at the moment who will give Keir Starmer a high five every time. He had, he had plenty of opportunities to put the government to task and he didn't do it. He just went along with them, which then goes into question about his actual leadership qualities. Obviously, James, this was happening last night. I have to say, Patrick McGuire and I were pretty scathing about Keir Starmer joining PMQs yesterday and his sort of failure to sort of land and it, that's clearly the case with this group I don't, maybe they probably have better things to particularly watch pmqs but kirstam is not resonating with them in any meaningful way uh, in a to become a sort of positive vote for labor yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think we see that reflected in the fact that Labour do have a lead in the polls, but it's nothing like Tony Blair had because Starmer's favourability ratings are still relatively poor. The reason the Conservatives are doing worse than Labour in seats like Wakefield and in the country is because Boris Johnson is more unpopular than Keir Starmer, not because Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer is popular. And you heard some of the quotes there, a sense of that he's he's weak, um, a sense that he hasn't got a plan, uh, a sense that he just sort of goes where the wind blows. The main thing that we found in our polling of the Red Wall uh, that voters are looking for is strength and authenticity and Keir Starmer falls short on both of those measures so they're not fans of Boris Johnson they're not fans of Keir Starmer is there anyone the group thought could do a better job 
I think the way things are at the minute, I think I could do a better job than them. Yeah, I like that Angela. I think her name's Angela. Her with the with the long hair. That's she's um, she works with Kia. She just comes across as normal. She doesn't seem to have come from like any privileged background. I've been quite impressed recently with them. Um, is it Liz, Tr- Liz Trust, the foreign secretary? I think she mm-hmm. um, she comes across well, and she seems to want to do what she says she's going to do. Quite like Steve Baker. I quite like Dominic Rob. I quite like Rushy Shunak, but I don't know if they'd make a good leader. Well, mixed bag there. I assume that it, I think the Angela we could be sure is Angela Rayner rather than I don't know, Eagle, because um, uh, her hair's shorter. Um, a bit of cut. I mean, surprising cut through on sort of your likes with Liz Truss and Steve Baker. But you know, for a group that are pretty despondent about politics, they're quite engaged actually. Compared to lots of when we've done these groups before. They don't seem to know who anyone is, and we get lots of messages saying, who are these people? And it turns out they're normal people with other interests. Um, but, but a bit of cut through. Um, maybe Keir Starmer should be worried about Angela Eagle. Uh, maybe not Angela Eagle. Angela- Sorry, Angela <laughs> I know, I've done There's it. There's too many Angela's. Too many <laughs> uh, yeah, although, of course, if Keir Starmer goes, then Angela Rayner said she's going to go. So that, that might is not true. be well, the, no, if, uh, But then if he gets fired and she doesn't, I mean, what happens then? That's true, that's true. And it goes back to that strength and authenticity thing. You know, yeah. The reason that she liked Angela Rayner was because she got the sense that she was normal and that she spoke her mind. Uh, good for Liz Truss there as well. Uh, one mention of, like you say, Steve Baker, Rishi Sunak. I mean, I have to say that listening to this group and listening to the lack of trust in Johnson, lack of trust in Starmer, it does make you think if a new sort of you know party with a charismatic leader on the right uh, came through, you know, you really could see it picking up some votes. You know, if Nigel Farage, you know, relaunched and, and, and tried to pick up votes in Wakefield, I'm sure he could, as could other you know big personalities out there too. And is what happens then in places like Wakefield, they pick up the Tory vote and so that the seat goes back to Labour? Is that the, the sort of mathematical calculation or is it more complicated than that? So it is, it, I think, yes, potentially, although I think that what's interesting when it comes to the next election is that if I were Labour, I wouldn't be wanting to see a new party either because a lot of these voters, like these like these guys, they voted Conservative in 2019 after having voted Labour, Labour before. This next election is their best chance, the best chance Labour have of winning them back. If they then go to another party, yeah. that's another degree removed. And you saw that happening in 2017 where some Conservative voters went to UKIP, sorry, when some Labour voters went to UKIP and then ended up eventually going to Conservatives later. To conservative. yeah, yeah. James Johnson, the former number 10 pollster, was in the chair uh, speaking to people who voted Conservative for the first time in Wakefield in 2019. Of course, there's a by-election coming in Wakefield. On uh, June the 23rd, one of those two by-elections, one was in Tiverton and one in Tiverton and Honiton. Uh, we did that as the focus group uh, last month. Uh, the one in Wakefield, of course, was triggered by the resignation of the Conservative MP, Imran Ahmad Khan, uh, following his uh, conviction for sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy in 2008. Uh, he was only elected in 2019. Uh, the Conservatives taking that seat uh, from Labour. Uh, Labour have got all their... All eyes on the seat. In a poll that James's uh, company, JL Partners, did at, uh, release at the weekend, Labour on 48%, the Conservatives on 28%. But James asked the people in the group uh, what they uh, thought about the by-election. Most hadn't even heard that it was happening. Is that James? Yeah, about half didn't, didn't, didn't know it was happening yet. Uh, and said so they would vote in it. Well, what would be the main issue that they'd be thinking about if they were to head to the polls? Get bills down and stuff like that, and energy prices and stuff like that. I'm at a point now where I think, I bother voting from. Nothing happens anyway. A, a strong candidate that's capable of taking the voters' voice to Parliament and looking after the people that have put them in that position rather than just towing the line to whatever party. How they would represent the North 
in terms of kind of like the infrastructure and, and any bills that would affect that. So there's, there's been a lot of talk of levelling up, but um, I've not seen it. Again, cost of living prices. It's got to be the cost of living and like the fuel. Definitely the cost of living, really. But that, that phrase, cost of living, comes up uh, again and again, James. It's interesting because the government probably uses the phrase cost of living as much as the opposition. And I wonder whether that's smart politics because it, you know it's become the thing now that everyone reaches for and it covers absolutely everything yeah and it covers a lot of frustration at the moment with with the government it's interesting in that 2010 to 2015 parliament i think the conservatives deliberately didn't use the words cost of living because labor and Medaban were using it so much they tried to pivot on onto the economy where the conservatives had more of a lead you might see in fact, the they didn't even really talk the government didn't talk about austerity they talked about long-term economic plan that that was you know they weren't certainly to go around talk about cuts yeah uh, and I suppose that's the, that's the language. You know, if you're if you're repeating the language back all the time, then it reinforces it. The other thing, that, uh, the, the theme that's coming through this, James, is this sort of plague on all their houses. They're all as bad as one another. And I wonder whether in some of these sort of left behind, forgotten red wall seats, which have been Labour for a long time, Labour had neglected, they voted in you know with some enthusiasm for the Conservatives and Boris Johnson for the first time in 2019. Is it a risk that actually they just get disappointed all over again? Yeah, I think there's a huge risk in that. Look, these voters have never been, you know, ecstatic about politicians. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But as I say, back in January 2020, in the wake of that election win for Boris Johnson, there was real excitement in these seats when I did focus groups in them and a real sense of, oh, OK, maybe they'll actually do something. Maybe they'll actually deliver. And even over the last two years, there's been that sense of a benefit of the doubt and a sense that Boris Johnson might have a plan. That now really has gone. I think the Conservatives had a big chance in 2016 after that referendum to reset public trust and to try to win people over. That was then lost. 2019, another chance. That's now been lost. It does make you wonder how many more chances do the Conservatives have with these voters. I mean, there's a lot riding on it, whoever becomes the new MP, to go and single-handedly sort out the global energy crisis and the impact that's having on bills. Um, uh, <laughs> you then also asked about how, how they might vote at the next election. I will go vote. Um, I've no idea which way I'll vote at the moment. I'd have to look into... I just don't want anybody that's just a yes person, that yes, we'll do this, yes, we'll do that, and like, like we all know, nothing will happen. Uh, I don't know much about the candidates. I don't really know much about the by-election, so I'm not even sure that I'm going to vote. No, I'm like 50-50. I don't know if to vote or not. I'm not sure. I will vote, but I've just had a quick look. There's 15 different candidates, so I would have to have a little look into them. My default vote would have been, obviously, for a Conservative, but now I'd have to look into some of the independents and see what they're going for. Uh, unless somebody really strikes uh, according to me, then I'm not sure. I'm not sure yet. I'm honest. Probably wouldn't vote. Oh, I will definitely vote. And me and my husband have discussed it and we've, we haven't got a clue who to vote for. So we said, well, we might go for Green Party. Yeah, James, it's not, not, not a lot of enthusiasm. Though. I, I, I said election, but they're talking there about the by-election. There's not a lot of enthusiasm for the Conservatives. They don't really know what to do. They're not massive fans of Boris Johnson. But why, aren't, why isn't that then leading to a corresponding vote for the Labour Party? Uh, this is what they had to say about what they think about Labour's vision for the country. Labour, for me, has lost its identity. I think it's forgot what it is. You, you watch the current Tory government, it's actually acting on behalf of Labour, the way they tax mm. it. Meanwhile, Labour can't decide what image it wants anymore and what direction it wants to head in. I couldn't tell you. I haven't a clue what their vision is. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if Labour wants to look after the working people anymore. No idea what their plan is. No idea. I'm clueless. I don't know. No vision. 
from what I can see, it's like we've all said that the purpose at the moment just to, seems to be to badmouth conservatives, but offer no solution. Yeah, I, I'm clueless, the same as everybody else, because Keir Starmer has not given me any indication of, of any plans that he wants to put in place. Again, like we've said, all he does is put conservative down, but doesn't give us any option. There's been a bit of a theme of this week from various people. You know, uh, uh, Peter Mandelson was saying it yesterday, uh, some shadow cabinet ministers. But I think we're going to take a more of an in-depth look next week on the show, uh, exactly what's going on in the Labour Party. But voters are picking up on this. You know, Keir Starmer is now a sort of sort of fixture of the national uh, picture, and they don't really know what he's all about. Yeah, and I think look, the Labour, the link between Labour and a lot of these, a lot of their traditional voters broke in 2019, and it's pretty clear from this that it hasn't yet been mended. Mm. Uh, Keir Starmer is a barrier to doing that for a lot of these voters, but it's not this. There's not a deep sense, you know, uh, sort of hatred for Keir Starmer or anything like that, or even the more as much antipathy as there is about Boris Johnson. It's this sense that there's no plan, there's no vision. What does he stand for? And I think that's what they're really looking for. And you know, their, their, their criticism is kind of fair, you know, in that there hasn't been this sort of, you know, big Starmer plan or vision yeah. that really connects with people. You know, a book isn't going to cut it for these voters. It's got to be something, you know, really sort of clear and concise. <laughs> you suggest that the good people of Wakefield are not going to rush out to the shops to buy this promised Shocking. book that, yeah. that Keir Starmer is writing. Uh, we will hear more from the group uh, in a moment. Lots of you have been messaging in. Do keep your messages coming in what you think about the focus group. You can text us 8722 start of the word times. Tweet me at Times Radio, uh, as one of the candidates, very sensibly, uh, he spotted because he, he looked it up while, um, while the group was going on, there are 15 candidates in this uh, in this by-election. They are the Dima Ahmed is the Conservative uh, for the Conservative Party, Akaf Akbar for, uh, is an independent, Paul Bickerdyke uh, from the Christian People's Alliance, Mick Dodgson from the Freedom Alliance, uh, Sir Archibald Stanton Earl Eaton the, from the official monster-waving loony party, Jada Franson is independent. Jordan James Gaskell from the UK Independence Party. David Hurdson from the Yorkshire Party. Therese Hurst from the English Democrats. Christopher Jones from the Northern Independence Party. Simon Lightwood from the Labour Party. Jamie Needle from the Liberal Democrats. Ashley Routh from the Green Party. Ashley Simon uh, from Britain First. And Chris Walsh is the Reform UK candidate in that Wakefield by-election on June the 23rd. Loads of you have been in touch, it has to be said. Uh, someone on Twitter says, your focus groups depress me each time by showing how completely disengaged the majority of the British public are with what's happening in politics and being clueless when it comes to policy. Uh, someone else uh, said on a similar theme, says, uh, these tweets could take 10 minutes to go online and read what about what Labour's policies are. Lazy, lazy people who expect to know what politicians stand for without taking the time to look into it. James, um, your reaction to that? I mean, my guess is people have got better things to do than Googling Labour's policy platform. <laughs> Quite. It's not, uh, it's, it's it, not their job, is it? it? Indeed. It's for politicians to reach out reach out to these voters and communicate it, communicate it to them. And quite frankly, if you can't communicate your uh, policies and vision well, uh, then it's no surprise that the public aren't, aren't aware of them. Uh, other um, one of the questions I thought was quite interesting was Clarissa got in touch asking if the this focus group was in person or on Zoom. Uh, this one was on Zoom. In fact, almost all bar one of the ones I think we've done on Times Radio been on Zoom, uh, in part because it it's sort of easier for us all to join it. But uh, she said she's intrigued to know if it th if you think it makes any difference to the way that they pan out. Because obviously you do do some in person and some on Zoom. Does it, does it bring out any differences? 
Yeah, it's a little bit different. It's obviously the, the, the real advantage is, of course, and most of our focus groups that we do on Times Radio are from voters across the country. So yeah. we're able to go to swing votes across the country. So that's one of the big benefits. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, in-person is good because you can pick up those little moments, you know, where you get a, a slight look of hesitation in someone's face or a slight sort of, you know, glimmer in their facial expression. You can go and say, OK, well, you know, Mark, what do you think? You know, and, 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 and go in a little bit uh, and you get a bit more of a group dynamic. Um, but yeah, the Zoom ones are have obviously been very fit for purpose throughout the pandemic and for getting audiences from across the country, they work really well too. I wonder as well whether people, because everyone got, during the pandemic got used to being on Zoom and sort of chatting away, and actually quite often they're sitting on their sofas or on the edge of the bed or whatever it might be. They're quite relaxed, you know, um, rather than being taken to a windowless meeting room at a Holiday Inn or whatever. Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a great proponent of the of of, of the in person ones. Uh, but you're right, the Zoom ones do give a uh, an insight. I think we I think we had uh, you get quite fun backgrounds as well. You get dogs <laughs> joining. I think you describe someone's background as sort of you know, is is he sat in a Weatherspoon's toilet at one point? <laughs> uh, you know, you get quite a uh, you get you, you quite, get a quite spread on you, you do get quite a mix. You do quite a mix. Um, uh, let's just look at some of these other comments that are coming in. It's interesting actually. Lots of criticism of. Of Labour, there's definitely a theme in this. I think for the big thing on uh, the show on Monday, we're going to look in a bit more depth as to exactly where Labour are. Uh, Tony says, Starmer gives the impression of treading water, but will he sink or swim? He needs swimming lessons, but it's a bit too late now. Uh, somebody else says, excoriating criticism of Starmer. Perhaps he should get a fixed penalty notice. Uh, Paul says, what these people are aching for is a transformative change in our society to make it more equal and more comfortable to live in. If Labour does not meet this with a bold vision, and then they will look elsewhere. And this is what gives demagogues their opportunity. Uh, so lots uh, lots to pick over there. Um, let's uh, take a listen then to the group again. This is when you ask them, and we do this every time, and it's always really interesting. If you got the chance, you found yourself face-to-face uh, -face with Boris Johnson, not like the chap who wanted to punch Boris Johnson if you saw him in the street, but um, uh, what would be your message to Boris Johnson? Pleased to help with the cost of living. I'm absolutely scared stiff, really, of what's going to come. Hacky bags. Get back to your manifesto. Grow up and sort your son out. I'd say go back to basics. Relook at your integrity. And, you know, get your party going in the same direction. Sort, sort cost of living out. Try and get everybody back to living the life happily. Help the people instead of helping yourself. Uh, grow up, get a grip and do what you promised to do and look after the people that put you there. I mean, they're straight talking, if nothing else, James. Um, uh, I mean, any positives in that that Boris Johnson could take? Well, there was only one person saying pack your bags, although they did all say earlier, all, all but one earlier said that he, he should resign, so perhaps not too much to take uh, there. Look, I think that the problem is, and you know, earlier in the group we asked people, um, you know, could you see yourself voting Conservative with Boris Johnson uh, still as leader? And five of the eight said no, they couldn't. And these are, as you say, yeah. Conservative 2019 voters. The bar that we then asked that three the three who the three who might what would bring them back round and it's a very high bar indeed it's basically either Boris Johnson needs to totally change, or you know get our fuel and energy bills down and it's worth saying the cost of living announcement we asked about that and people said that that was a drop in the ocean and wasn't making the change they and it was wasn't intended to wasn't going to make the change they expected and that was two weeks ago today it cost twenty one billion pounds. Uh, and they're already saying it's not enough and, and more needs to be done. So that's the message for Boris Johnson. What about the group's message to Keir Starmer? What What are you doing? What are your plans? Because I have no clue. Get a plan and work to it. Make a plan and try and change this, this country. What does the Labour Party now stand for? Speak to a career consultant and find something you're better suited to. 
try to change Labour around and just make it as a working class again. Who are you? Speak up. Wow. I mean, it feels like we've gone backwards from Keir Starmer. You know, we've been doing this every month since we launched. It was actually it was, it was two, two years into this month. And we went, through, we went through a period of people who don't know who he is, who, never seen him before. And then people, the, the door seemed to be open. Oh, I quite like him, actually. He seems to speak some sense and he's a bit more sensible than Boris Johnson and all that. And he seems to now be going backwards. Is it because, uh, you know, after maybe earlier in the year, it was all party gate in Ukraine and Kirsten was not really a part of that. Uh, but now on to cost of living crisis, there were real, real life issues that people are facing. Cost of, you know, uh, uh, and he's not really inserting himself into that conversation. Yeah, two answers to that. One's the boring pollster answer, which is that slightly different audience, you know, more likely to skew conservative yeah. this audience than some of the swing voters we speak to across across England. His approval ratings are still a bit better than they were at their real low point last last year. The second thing is, and I think it's a time thing, the longer time goes on, they don't see a plan from him, the more frustrated they get. And if I'm Labour listening to that, I think, you know, they just need to use that word plan in you know everything they do and crucially come up with one. And I think that's what these voters are really looking for now and if you know some some strategists in Keir Starmer's team might be thinking well you know if we announce everything now then we won't have anything to announce for an election but actually the perception that you don't have a plan if that gets locked in now then that's really dangerous for them and actually we talked about a minute ago but David Cameron's long-term economic plan that got them through an entire parliament and into the next election and actually, the long-term element was because it was originally a short-term plan and it didn't work. They didn't get the deficit down, so it became a long-term plan. But you just kept hammering away to the point it was a joke. But people felt like, OK, these guys have got a plan. Yeah, and it doesn't even need to be, you know, everything they're going to announce. It doesn't need to be loads and loads of pages of stuff. It's, you know, two or three, you know, big retail policies that are linked to the uh, issues that people really care about, you know, but stitched together in some kind of story and narrative that makes sense and feels like something that's going to resonate with their lives. Um, you know, it's easy to sit here and say it, for sure. Uh, and obviously, you know, the Labour have lots of different interests they need to balance and address and, you know, trade off against each other. But ultimately... That's what voters are looking for now. And in terms of this by-election specifically, there were two on June the 23rd. Tiverton and Honiton, where the Lib Dems are hoping to overturn a huge 20,000-odd Conservative majority uh, after Neil Parrish resigned. Here in Wakefield, your poll uh, gave Labour a 20-point uh, lead. I mean, this group, this group, and I know there are only a handful of people, they don't necessarily feel like they're they're going to be part of that surge. How do you sort of reconcile those two things? So I think the first thing that we can definitely say, I think, is that turnout is going to be low. Um, we saw that in the poll that we did, and you can see here you know, a lot of these voters saying they're not even going to bother turning out. So that Tory vote could really uh, not turn out uh, much at all. And that is what could give Labour their advantage almost automatically. You know, if you've got a significant number of Conservative voters not turning out, if you've got a significant number of Conservative voters going for smaller parties or independents, uh, then that could give Labour their lead. It's worth saying that in our poll, we had 7% of 2019 Conservatives saying that they were going to switch direct to Labour. So we may have just not picked those up in the yeah. focus group. I'm sure that is the case. But, uh, but as whether these these things it's the people who actually turn out on the day and actually if if the same number of people as last time who voted Labour just vote for Labour again and a whole load of Tories stay at home 
it's a Labour win without any switches. Yeah, and the other interesting dynamic we saw in the poll is that we've got actually the Lib Dems are doing okay on about sort of seven eight percent or so, uh, and they're getting votes from the Conservatives. Uh, so you know, there's some Conservatives in the seats. They know they know it's a Conservative Labour race, yeah. but they don't want to vote Labour, so they're going to Lib Dems, and obviously that ultimately benefits Labour. And you were talking earlier on about the prospect you know, on a sort of national picture of uh, of uh, a new party on the right with sort of possibly Nigel Farage. There are quite a few smaller parties on the right standing in this. Uh, uh, by-election, um, and that could peel off some votes away from the Conservatives as well. Yeah, it could. Uh, none of them have a particularly significant national brand, but uh, Reform UK is in there, UKIP is in there, uh, Britain First is in there, there are a couple of independents too. Uh, you could see them just generally sucking up some of those Conservative votes uh, from the kind of people, and we heard some of them from some of them in the focus group, who feel that it's their du- duty to vote, but they don't know where they're going to fall. You could see some Conservative votes going there as well. But I think you know pretty clear that this is not the Wakefield electorate is not rushing to Labour. It could be that they win it uh, almost through Conservative disaffection rather than through Labour attraction. If Labour get a big margin in this seat, whether it's 20 points, 15 points, 10 points, I think we can say from the focus groups and from the polling that that is not going to be because of a love for Keir Starmer. Although there's a danger that that's how they interpret it and think that everything is everything is fine in, in, in Labour land. We, honestly, we've had so many messages from you today about the groups... Uh, and uh, oh, Mark just said Starmer does not want to say what, what his plan is because Boris, uh, after saying Starmer's idea is rubbish, then steals it a few weeks later. I suppose that's a risk, but then having no plan uh, has risks with it. Uh, final word, though, to Jeff, who's been in touch. It goes right back to the very first conversation we were having, uh, listening to that group and uh, the reflections on Boris Johnson and what happened during uh, Partygate. Jeff says, my wife passed away in April 2020. My family was forbidden to give her the send-off she deserved. Johnson knew or should have known his behaviour was contrary to the instructions he and his party spouted every day. My vocabulary doesn't contain any words sufficiently crude or adequately to convey the contempt I feel towards him and his sycophants who keep him in power. And that that just that that mood, it doesn't matter how many times Tory MPs say we've draw a line and it move on. There were plenty of people like Jeff and the people we heard from in the group, and this 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 still lingers. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.